Welcome along, explorers. It's that time of the week again. Let's get ready to explore the universe. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. Thank you for being there. So excited to explore with you. This is where we search out all the science secrets lurking around the solar system. And it is bigger, it is better than ever. This week we're carrying on our challenge, trying to find the greatest science in the world. Last week we looked at soil. This week we're staying underground looking at rocks. Geology is a crossroads of the past, the deep past, and also the more immediate past. What happened just a few years ago, or a few centuries, or a few thousand years ago, uh, and extending up into the future. And finally, we will solve one of the greatest mysteries of our life. Something that has shaken, shocked and surprised humanity for years. At last, we will discover, finally, why we burp. We need to get rid of some of those gases that build up while we're eating and while we're digesting our food. So what happens is, as we're eating, we're taking in foods, we're taking in drinks, and we're also taking in some gases um, just by the process of moving our mouth. And they come down into the stomach along with everything else. Plus, you know, if you drink like a fizzy drink or something like that, those gases end up in your stomach as well. And you can hear all about the only venomous lizard in the United States of America. It's all coming up on a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news then. A rocket from the United States has blasted off and is hoping to reach the south pole of the moon. It's a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket nicknamed Odysseus. It's being launched by a company called Intuitive Machines. Now, if it lands on the moon, this is a big deal because before, only space organisations run by countries really have reached the moon. If this makes it, it'll be the first private company to land there, heading to the South Pole too, and the first American mission to touch down on the moon in 51 years. Now, this could be huge. We've spoken in the last few weeks about man's mission to try to get back to the moon. If we reach there, it's a good stepping stone to try and send humans there in the next few years. Also, some polar bears face starvation as the Arctic sea ice melts because they're unable to adapt their diets to living on land, scientists have found. Now, the polar bears, they normally feed on seals that they catch on ice which floats all around offshore. But as this ice disappears, as the world warms, many bears are spending a large amount of time onshore eating bird's eggs, berries and grass. Now, it might be fine if you're a vegetarian eating berries and stuff, but if you're a massive polar bear, you need loads more food. So this is making the animals rapidly lose weight, which is a big, bad deal for them. And it just makes you notice another impact from our warming world. And our final story this week, a new drone has begun test flights in Antarctica. It will scour the continent for environmental research. Let's find out more. Miriam McNabb is from Drone Life. Miriam, thank you for being there. Just tell us, what is this drone 
looking for as it surfs over the South Pole? Well, it's looking for all kinds of things that you would want to know. If you think about the concept of a drone, it's something that goes places that people can't or places people don't really want to be. So there are a lot of applications for measuring things over the ocean, measuring ice cap, measuring the depth of ice, measuring wildlife, counting wildlife that's out there, taking readings from various environmental places. So it's really exciting because you can actually put a drone out there in conditions that just aren't great for human beings. Now, this is the Wind Racers Ultra Autonomous Drone. Now, when I mention a drone, someone listening might be thinking about one of those small things that you can kind of work from your home and they have four little propellers. But this this looks massive. Just tell us more about the types of drones that do these operations. Sure. So, you know, a recreational drone or something that you fly is the same basic concept. You know, you're flying around a camera. But if you think about that, it's easily caught up by the wind. A lot of people who have ever tried to fly a recreational drone have ended up trying to get it out of a tree. And so to do things in challenging conditions, in cold and in wind and in extreme environments, you need something bigger. And additionally, while um, a recreational drone is carrying some kind of camera usually so that you can take fun pictures of your house or your friends, a research drone is carrying other kinds of sensors. So it might be carrying a very powerful camera, but it might also be carrying something we call LIDAR, which is able to uh, sort of make topographical maps and find things with great precision, or it might be carrying thermal imagery, which could allow it to find animals or things that are warmer than the surrounding uh, environment, even in the dark. So things like the Wind Racer Ultra are definitely not something that you're going to purchase and you're going to buy, but they're a serious scientific tool because they're able to withstand a lot of different conditions and carry a lot of different uh, sensors and equipments. Talking about those recreational drones, the ones that we might be able to buy and fly, we can't go too far away from them. You have to be you know, within sight of the thing most of the time. But the thing about Antarctica, it's quite a remote place, Miriam. How close do the scientists need to be to operate something this enormous over such a massive area? Well, there's two issues there. So there's the technical issue and there's the legal issue. So here in the United States, for example, when you say you have to be sort of within sight, you actually have to be within sight of your drone. That's the law. It's called flying within visual sight of the aircraft. But Actually, technically speaking, if you can have a good enough connection, there have been many examples of people flying drones way, way remotely, like somebody in Texas here in the United States operating a drone way over in Europe. And that's absolutely possible to do. In fact, One of the really exciting things that's kind of coming down the line and the reason that that particular test took place between Texas and Europe is because they're talking about, will they be able to operate drones on Mars from Earth? So technically speaking, you can be a long, long way away. And is that all done through, what, Wi-Fi? 
through 4G and satellites? How is someone in Texas flying something in the UK? <laughs> That's exactly it. Cell phone connections, right? If I can talk to you over in Europe on, on a cell phone connection, we can also think about possibilities of operating a drone remotely. Now that does, I will say again, or I'm going to get in trouble with the, with the FAA and the air authorities, you're not allowed to do that unless you have special permission. <laughs> Miriam, I'm so excited to find out the future of drones in the next few years. It's been a real joy to chat to you. Thank you for being there. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, this is the Fun Kids Science Weekly, and it is bigger and better than ever. This is what I love about the podcast. We've just pumped loads more wow into it. So we're getting loads of experts on. Geniuses that will come on, that will tell us about what's happening in the news, that will prove why their science is the best, and also that will answer your questions, right? If you have anything science to you that you want answered by me or by another expert, make sure you leave it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. Arthur is in Isleworth in the UK and has actually sent this as a message to me. Arthur wants to know, is it possible for planet Earth to run out of water? Well, the answer is no. Not really, Arthur. You see, because of the water cycle, where seawater gets hot normally, it evaporates to become clouds, they become cold and heavy, so they rain, which gives us more water. We've got that cycle going on. It means we should always have water. The problem is, it's the type of water that we have that's important. Almost all of the water on planet Earth, 97% of it is salty, and it's found in oceans, so we can't drink it. Now, if we really needed to, we could take the salt out of it, which is a very expensive and a very hard, long thing to do. Only 3% of the water on planet Earth can be used by humans to keep us healthy. The problem is most of it is locked away in frozen glaciers high up in mountains. So we don't have a lot of water to drink, which is why water scarcity is a big problem. Hot countries that don't have access to clean drinking water often. So many governments and charities are trying to solve that by building wells and pumps. But that's still a big problem for millions of people who live around the world, just not having access to water. So while planet Earth won't really run out of water, Arthur, we could run out of drinkable water. So we need ideas for ways that we can make the most of what we have. It's a brilliant question and it's really got us thinking, Arthur. Thank you so much for that. Uh, let's get another one on. This is a voice note. It's been sent to the Free Fun Kids app by Tolu. I want to know why do we... Thank you for that, Tulu. What a question. Why do we burp? Well, it seems simple enough to sort out, right? To help us understand this one, let's chat to Naomi Lavelle from Dr. How Science Wows. Naomi, thank you so much for being there. So, how do we burp? Hi, Dan, and thanks. What a great question. Well, we burp because we need to get rid of some of those gases that build up while we're eating and while we're digesting our food. So what happens is, as we're eating, we're taking in foods, we're taking in drinks, and we're also taking in some gases um, just by the process of moving our mouth. And they come down into the stomach along with everything else. Plus, you know, if you drink like a fizzy drink or something like that, those gases end up in your stomach as well. So that's usually fine. That's part of the digestive system. But sometimes they build up a little bit and um, it can get a bit uncomfortable. So the best thing to do is let them out. And they come out the same way they came in, which is back up through the digestive tract and out your mouth. So 
What's happening in our stomach when it realises we've got a bit of gas that we need to get out, we're getting overloaded? What is it doing to force this air out? Well, it can build up a little bit. And as you know, like if if you get a lot of gas, it can get quite uncomfortable. So what happens is that gas tends to separate out because it's lighter, it'll go to the top of the stomach. And then it can, uh, there's a little muscle that will release it back into your esophagus. And there's a little muscle at the top that will actually release in the same way it releases to let food down and gases down, it will release to let it back out your mouth. There are some people actually who can't burp and that can become quite a medical difficulty. And uh, sometimes they need to train that muscle to actually work in reverse so that it'll let gas out. Because otherwise, if you can't get it up, it'll eventually end up going down. So, which is a (laughs) different kind of uh, wind release altogether. (laughs) You mentioned fizzy drinks there. I know that when Mm -hmm. we have fizzy drinks, a lot of gas in there. So we do need to burp. Uh, Are there foods that make us burp more than others? And why so? Absolutely. Yes. Kind of more fibrous Foods like pulses and beans, a lot of your vegetables, some processed foods as well. And just when that food starts to get broken down in your stomach, it releases more gases and things like that because it's quite fibrous. So in general, the gases that you release in a burp tend to be similar to the air that you actually take in. They're often just oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide. So nothing too bad. (laughs) And my last question, I'm one of those people who can burp on cue. So just whenever I want, I can burp, but I don't know what's happening. Why can I do that? And loads of people can't. Oh, good question. I guess you have very good control of those muscles that we're talking about. You know, the way I said some people can't do that at all and they have to train it. So I guess you've trained your body to allow that muscle on demand. Quite a talent. (laughs) (laughs) I wish wish I trained it to be good at sport or something like that. (laughs) Well, listen, Tulu, that's why we burp. And Naomi from Dr. How Science Wells, thank you so much for teaching us all about that. Thank you. What a great question. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan then. This is a podcast, it's packed with even more wow, even more science than ever before and I still love searching the universe to try to find some of the most weird, unique, strange and deadly things that exist. This week we're heading to the south of the United States, creeping into Mexico a touch too to take a look at one of the only venomous lizards around there. The Gila monster is a big, cumbersome lizard. It grows to about half a metre long. It takes its name from the Gila River Basin, which once swept through the United States. Now, it is brilliantly camouflaged. Like, seriously, it looks like it's wearing camouflage. Uh, Like army suits with green and brown twisting stripes all across it. The Gila monster spends most of its time underground in burrows or rocky shelters, cooling off from the desert sun. They've got a bumpy, bony, rigid skin. Now, they're pretty sluggish, right? Not very quick to get moving. But... They are the only venomous lizard from the United States. When they bite, they bite, they can do damage. Now, their toxins aren't normally fatal to humans, so they shouldn't kill someone, but it can still have just huge consequences. Their bite has been described as the worst pain ever, like lava searing through your body. It's thought to be the most painful bite by any big animal with legs. Which is quite a trophy. Here's the sad thing, though. The early settlers in the United States, when they came over from Europe, they were quite spooked by the animal, right? It looked a bit like a dragon. (laughs) This big, camouflaged lizard that liked to bite. 
They thought it was a mythical deadly beast, so they killed quite a lot of them for no reason. So there aren't as many Gila monsters around as they were, but still, they have one heck of a painful bite, which means it needs to go on our Dangerous Dan list. Let's carry on our search then for the greatest science around. We are challenging experts from across the world to prove why their field should come first today. We have Professor Jan Salazovic, a geologist from the University of Leicester, who joins us. Jan, thank you for being there. To start, you have 60 seconds to tell us why geology is the greatest and your time starts now. Thank you, Dan. I'd, I'd be very glad to say why geology is, is uh, the greatest, the most fun, I think, because we deal with uh, the science of, of the whole Earth. You know, so that is, uh, is the whole Earth, whether it's on land or at sea, and uh, through time. So we go back four and a half billion years uh, to the times of the dinosaurs and the times of the first forests and the times even before that when there was uh, no life at all on, on Earth, uh, and the times even before the moon formed, uh, when the Earth was a completely different planet. Uh, so it's a huge subject, uh, but it's one we can do everywhere or anywhere. Uh, I can walk out uh, uh, from, my, uh, from my front door uh, and walk down the street into the field, uh, and immediately I can begin picking up pebbles of rocks which formed, uh, some formed uh, 150 million years ago, uh, uh, when the dinosaurs lived, uh, some formed uh, oh much, uh, much older than that. You know, three or four hundred million years old. Yeah, and that is your time. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and that is your time. That is one minute. Thank you so much. But it's it's given me a, a lot of food for thoughts there. Right. Because you, you're you're dealing with actually, as you say, millions, billions of years worth of history. So I wonder. As a geologist, what does a day look like for you? When you come into work, what are you looking up? Are you digging to find rocks? Are you trying to find bones for paleontology? Just run us through that side of things. Okay, uh, th- there are many different kinds of days uh, of, of that. But let's say that the, the kind of, uh, let's, let's take an average day when I was working in the hills. Uh, so what I I do is is uh, uh, you know I get my rucksack ready, have all my food for the day, have all manner of waterproofs, you know, just in case, sun hat and sunscreen again, just in case because you 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 have to deal with the weather all day. I would go out, climb the hill, see what kind of rocks are there, what kind of minerals, what kind of fossils, try and work out how they formed, you know, how one rock relates to another. That's just you know a, a little bit further along. Uh, how old they are, what was happening? Was it an, an ancient sea? Uh, was it a, a land surface? What kind of life was living there? Uh, so it's it's a, a big puzzle. It's like a big detective story that you're trying to piece together, you know, from little bits of evidence, you know, which may or may not fit together, you know, so you're always trying to puzzle things through. And then I'd come back, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd sort out, you know, the specimens I'd collected, you know, wrapped up, carefully labeled, uh, I'd have notebooks, you know, which, you know, where I've written down my thoughts and written down uh, the various things I've seen, maybe drawn pictures, uh, you know, of some of the rocks. Uh, and all of that comes together to produce part of a story, you know, of, of how the earth formed and what the earth is made of. Now, geology, it sounds like this is a science that's looking at 
what's happened, right? We're looking at billions of years of history. How can what you find help our future? Because we're also looking at what is happening now. Let's say if, uh, you know, if, if I visit a volcano, then I'm interested in its past, of course, because the past can tell us how dangerous it might be in the future, but also looking at what it is doing now. Uh, you know, sort of looking at, at you know, you know whether it's active, whether it's inactive, um, what kind of, of rocks are there, uh, and also trying to predict, project what it might do in the future. You know, so the geology is a crossroads of the past, the deep past, and also the more immediate past. What happened just a few years ago, or a few centuries, or a few thousand years ago, uh, and extending up into the future. And of course, now we humans are part of geology. We're making new kinds of rock, you know, that we call concrete and brick, and new kinds of mineral that we call things like plastic and glass. And these are also no part of what we study, you know, uh, uh, and fit into the grand story of what the earth is and how it formed. And what is going to happen to it in the future? It's a strong fight for geology. Professor Jan Zalazovic, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Yes, thank you very much to Jan for coming on the show. So, we have had a soil expert. We have had a geology expert. Who do you think is winning the battle of the sciences so far? Let me know. Send a message to my page over at funkidslive.com. Very excited to see who is trying to prove they are first in their field next week on the podcast. You know what? We can actually stay looking at rocks right now with an episode from our Geology Rocks series. If you've never heard it before, we join Finn Lee. He's travelling around the world, even going back in time to explore everything from fossils to volcanoes and how rocks formed our planet. Today, it's all about the legacy left by the dinosaurs. The fossil. What can we learn from them? Geology Rocks! Geological Society! Hiya! I'm on the beach today, rock watching. I'm looking for some nice ammonites for my collection. Ammonites are fossils, and fossils are the remains of living things from the past, preserved in rock. All right, I bet you think that's pretty boring. I mean, rocks are just part of the mud in the park or in our gardens, aren't they? Well, you're right. They're part of the world around us. But you're wrong to think that they're boring. Lots of fossils, for example, come from the same time as the dinosaurs. And you don't get much more exciting than that. If it wasn't for fossils, we wouldn't know much about dinosaurs or the amazing creatures and plants that were around then. Dinosaurs lived on Earth for around 170 million years. But thanks to a huge asteroid hitting Earth off the coast of Mexico 65 million years ago, all the dinosaurs and lots of other life were wiped out. Well, that's one theory. Let's see how these handy rocks were made. So, my little ammonites would have died at some point and sunk onto the ocean bed. The soft parts would have been eaten or rotten away, and the hard parts that were left would be covered over by sand and silt. Only a very few would be preserved as fossils, and only if the conditions were just right. As the years passed, hundreds of thousands of years, the skeleton would have disintegrated too. But for a lucky few ammonites, the space left behind would have been filled by water rich in minerals. 
So the original shell was replaced with minerals and became a hard rock, tough enough to last for millions of years. Until it's found and added to my collection if I'm lucky. There are lots of other ways to make a fossil. Some things leave a mould in the rock, a bit like a footprint in mud. Some even get squashed flat. Ouch! As well as fossils of bigger animals and plants, like my ammonite or dinosaur skeletons and tougher kinds of plant life. You can find smaller things which lived millions of years ago too. Sometimes, tiny insects and small plants can be turned into fossils, but some of them survive in a different way. Prehistoric creatures and plants can also be found in amber, which is formed when a sticky resin from trees gloop over them and then sets hard. Scientists have found insects trapped inside amber, perfectly preserved for us to see today. If you've seen the film Jurassic Park, you might remember that it was an insect in amber that helped stop the whole thing. Fossils are like clues that help us solve the mystery of the past. By finding and studying them, we can tell if the dinosaurs laid eggs or had live babies, where they lived, and even find out how the Earth's continents have moved over the years. One example is a freshwater reptile, Mesosaurus. It's extinct now. It was a bit like a lizard and has only been found in Brazil and West Africa, two places that are thousands of miles apart. But paleontologists are pretty sure that as it could never have travelled that far on its own, these two areas were once connected to each other. Geology picks. How can paleontologists be so sure about what these animals ate? Well, what goes in must come out. That's right, fossil poo, <laughs> called coprolite. It can help scientists find out what animals ate, what was around them, and the sort of environment they would have lived in. Pretty incredible for a load of poo. Time to go. See you again soon. In the meantime, find out more on the Fun Kids website. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If you have anything you want answered next week on the podcast, make sure you send a voice note to us on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. I will sort some and I'll get an absolute genius to sort the rest of them. We've got loads of brilliant podcast series that you can hear over... We've got loads of brilliant podcast series that you can hear wherever you get your shows, Google, Apple, Spotify. They're on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslife.com and Fun Kids are our children's radio station, which you can hear all over the UK on the free app, on our website. And if you've got a smart speaker, wake it up and ask it to play Fun Kids. <laughs>